You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In the mid-18th century, American church officials spoke out vehemently against the work of founding father and inventor Benjamin Franklin. They called him a heretic and said he would bring destruction down on us all. One pastor even blamed Franklin for invoking God's wrath in the form of an earthquake. Was it his penchant for the ladies, his love of scientific study, his habit of spending time at home naked with the windows open? No, it was his lightning rod. That's not a euphemism, an actual metal rod for attracting lightning. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Douglas Adams wasn't wrong when he wrote, 1. Anything that's in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and just a natural part of the way the world works. 2. Anything invented between when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it. 3. Anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. This third class of thing is ripe to turn into a moral panic. A moral panic is a widespread fear, usually an irrational one, that someone or something is a threat to the values, safety, or interests of the majority. Typically, a moral panic is perpetuated by the news media and often picked up by politicians, sometimes resulting in the passing of knee-jerk legislation. In this way, moral panics are an accidental source of social control. Just as with urban legends, moral panics often vilify marginalized people, be they separated by race, gender, sexuality, nationality, class, or religion and the panic only reinforces the stereotypes it's built on. But a thing doesn't have to be real for people to panic over it. There is no evidence that things like the Momo Challenge, where a scary internet image makes you harm or kill yourself, ever once caused a single injury or undesirable outcome. The same goes for rainbow parties, huffing Jenkum, and tampered Halloween candy. You can hear more about Panic Over Nothing in one of our earliest episodes, Shenanigans. But a number of actual, factual, real-life things have left parents and the media clutching their pearls. You would expect dances like twerking to cause a stink. And oh, briefly cast your mind back to 1987 when we thought dirty dancing was scandalous. But would you believe that people struck out on moral crusades against the fanciest, stuffiest, most stuck-up dance you can think of, the waltz? There are many references to a sliding or gliding dances being performed in Europe before the waltz first appeared in ballrooms in Vienna, Austria, and caused outrage. What began as a folk dance called the waltzen, meaning to turn in German, began to spread through Europe by the late 1700s. It immediately became popular with young people from the wealthy middle classes, as it fit perfectly with the current shift away from the aristocratic customs of their forebearers. 
where dances like the minuet, with its precise choreography, kept dancers at arm's length from each other. The waltz called for putting an arm around your partner as you twirled across the floor. Until then, dancers would, at most, hold hands. Conservative critics were outraged. One could only assume that ladies fainted and men dropped their monocles. This new dance had entirely too much touching to be decent. In 1818, Madame de Genlis, a governess of the briefly restored French royal family, said that the waltz would corrupt any honest young man who performed it. A young woman, lightly dressed, throws herself into the arms of a young man, she wrote. He presses her to his chest and conquers her with such impetuosity that she soon feels her heart beat violently as her head giddily swims. This is what they call waltzing. An 1833 British manual on good manners recommended only married women should dance the waltz, lest it lead unwed women to temptation and ruin. The writer Lord Byron wrote that the waltz was a lewd grasp and lawless contact warm that wouldn't leave much mystery for the nuptial night. And that's coming from a man who had relations with his half-sister. It was outlawed in parts of Sweden and Germany, the Times of London called it an indecent foreign dance. Even bad publicity is still publicity, and the waltz quickly spread. Its popularity led to the creation of a new kind of establishment, the public dance hall. The first, Carlisle House in London, was opened by a Viennese opera singer and allowed guests to dine, play cards, listen to music, and of course dance. Soon, dance halls were everywhere. At the epicenter of the waltz, Vienna's Apollo Hall had five ballrooms. Critics continued to speak against it, but the waltz went from craze to staple anyway. By the 1830s, it was estimated that half of Vienna's population had attended a waltz. The waltz spread to the U.S., where it became especially popular after the Civil War, and American versions, like the Boston Dip, were created. The waltz died out in America in the early 20th century, not because of any supposed sexual temptation, but because of its Germanic origins and that pesky world war. Waltzes twirled away just in time for the Charleston to come on the scene, and with it a brand new round of gasping and fainting. The dance originated in the South Carolina city that lent it its name, though it quickly spread across the country and then across the pond, thanks to the likes of Josephine Baker. The Charleston was a fast dance that called for leaning forward and used kicks and big arm movements. You'd work up a sweat while dancing, something that's never been considered ladylike. After taking up historically male jobs and male social roles during World War I, the Charleston was the perfect fit for the newfound spirit of female liberation. According to British historian Lucy Worsley, when the Charleston arrived from America in 1925, it took the dance floor by storm. It allowed women to break free from a man's embrace and dance on their own. Many feared the emergence of a short-haired, short-skirted flapper as the erosion of traditional womanhood. Instead of the girls of our fondest imagination, a soldier wrote to his hometown paper, we find them madly given over to dancing. Before this whole episode turns into panics over dances, let me highlight one more staggeringly silly-seeming example. The turkey trot. 
The core move of the turkey trot is stepping on one foot, then the other, with the legs fairly spread, with optional elbow flapping. It doesn't strike this reporter as much to look at, even after looking it up on YouTube, but it was held up to be the next big scourge against our combined moral fiber. The turkey trot was banned in several cities, warned against by doctors, and even denounced by President Woodrow Wilson. New York's mayor, William J. Gaynor, referred to the dances as lascivious orgies. Chicago police stationed plainclothes officers in dance halls to look for it. Boston Mayor John F. Fitzgerald ordered that a matron and policeman be posted in every dance hall in the city and personally vowed to revoke the license of any hall that allowed the turkey trot. The United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, forbade cadets from dancing it. A New Jersey couple were arrested and fined $25 each for dancing the turkey trot. Unable to pay the fine, which is just over $600 in today's money, the female dance partner was sentenced to 50 days in jail. Much of the staff of the Ladies' Home Journal magazine were fired on the spot when their editor caught them practicing the break on their unpaid lunch hour. There were even scattered newspaper reports of people dropping dead while doing the turkey trot, printed in an effort, stoked by none other than the Daughters of the American Revolution, to scare people away from it. Follow me out on this limb as I suggest that what was really bothering the squares about these different dances was the liberation, sexual and otherwise, that they symbolized for each generation of young women. That sentiment was at the heart of a number of other moral panics that boggle the modern mind. Take bicycling, for example. After the large front wheel of the penny-farthing-style bike gave way to the equally-sized wheels of the safety bike, and better-riding pneumatic tires were added in the late 1880s, cycling skyrocketed in popularity. Women were right behind the men in taking up this new, fun, healthy way to get from A to B. By 1897, membership in the League of American Wheelmen was one-third female. Women were no longer limited to the neighborhood in which they lived, and exciting new fashions like split skirts, bloomers, and even riding slacks were being propelled by the bike's chain. If you've ever wondered why girls' bikes have a low frame between the wheels, whereas boys' bikes have a high frame, primed to squish delicate bits if you slip off the seat, preventing immodesty in the skirt-wearing sect is why. Cue the panic. Ministers preached that taking a nice bike ride on Sunday was ruining people's observation of the Sabbath. One writer called this development alarming, worse than saloons. Another said that bikes were literally satanic. Doctors put out the notion that bicycling had dangers well beyond the very real threat of crashes and accidents. Articles were published with titles like Harmful Effects of the Bicycle Upon the Girl's Pelvis. The problem was in the design of the bicycle saddle. Riding with one's body weight too far forward might lead to friction and heating of the parts where it is very undesirable and may lead to dangerous practices. And women were advised to sit up properly straight and tall when riding to avoid it. Or even to ride side saddle, meaning both legs on the same side. No advice was given as to how to propel a bicycle forward using only one pedal and not immediately fall over while trying to sit sideways on the tiny seat. 
A Tennessee doctor reported it was no uncommon thing for a female patient of his, who obviously enjoyed such dangerous practices, to experience a sexual orgasm three or four times on a ride of one hour. Are we sure he's writing against bicycle riding? Sounds like he's hitting all the selling points. Doctors also warned that the vibrations would lead women to become sexually insatiable, and even lead them to become lesbians. Bowing to pressure of the panic, bicycle manufacturers designed modified saddles that euphemistically promised to deliver riders from such injurious pressure. Even if your bike didn't drive you to lesbianism, it could still damage your character by letting you out in public where you might socialize with unmarried men. The most extreme manifestation of this sentiment came from Charlotte Smith, whose Boston-based Women's Rescue League denounced bicycle riding on the grounds that it made young ladies unwomanly and immodest, and prevented motherhood among married women. According to a circular the organization disseminated in 1896, bicycling by young women has helped more than any other medium to swell the ranks of reckless girls who finally drift into the army of outcast women of the United States. And if a woman could freely move through the world, who knows what sorts of ideas she might be exposed to. It's little wonder, then, that the women's suffrage movement started shortly after women took up cycling. Susan B. Anthony succinctly concluded that cycling has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. There were still a few voices of reason. In 1896, a writer for the Chicago Daily News pointed out the double standard for the treatment of women. When a woman wants to learn anything, or even have any fun, there is always someone to solemnly warn her it is her duty to keep well. Meanwhile, she can bend over the sewing machine for five cents an hour, and no one cares enough to protest. But when the same women, condemned to sedentary lives indoors, find a cheap and delightful way of getting fresh air and exercise they so sorely need, there is a great hue and cry about their physical welfare. Speaking of sensible messages, we got one recently from one of our newest patrons at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. I was lucky enough to get two new patrons over this previous weekend, one called Whale Biscuit, I do not know the backstory, but I assume I would like it, and the other one William Tacey, who wrote in to say, Good day to you and thank you for hours of information. I'm 48, back in college full-time, and working full-time nights. Needless to say, sleep is almost non-existent in my life right now. Your voice and content keep me riveted all night long. To put it in perspective, if I listen to music, it has to be a fast beat or I start yawning. I've never yawned to your podcast, and coincidentally, the first podcast I've ever listened to. I've tried others in the past, but just couldn't connect. Maybe because my ADHD brain needed to hear a like mind. Have a good day. Oh, and Savannah is just adorable in her cast. Thank you so much, Bill, and I promise everyone, as I've promised before, that Science with Savannah Age 7 will come back sometime before the girl turns 8, and that Rock History with Joe Christie is almost ready to launch. So Bill and Whale Biscuit now join the other members at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts in enjoying bonus mini-episode, voting on topics, exclusive swag, and more. 
If you want to get involved with your fellow Brainiacs without spending any money, you can always go to facebook.com slash groups with an S slash Brainiac Breakroom to post cool facts that you find and to see other facts that I find during the week that don't fit with that week's theme. Of course, we're on Facebook and Instagram at Your Brain on Facts and Twitter at Brain on Facts Pod. And of course, I'm always appreciative of people like Richard Enriquez, Eric Parfait, and the most stable genius for helping to share our posts, because word of mouth is still the best way to help a podcast. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The ability for women to communicate freely, whether to other women or to men, fueled two fires of moral outrage, one against telephones and one against the mail. These days, parents and other adults are up in arms about the deleterious effects of screen time on children, or young people being bombarded with or sending sexual pictures. Long before Tinder, the very act of talking on the phone got some folks all Twitter-pated. You remember talking? It's that terrifying thing that some people still insist on doing when they could just text you. Edison's original vision for the telephone was for use in emergency situations, but primarily for businesses, which meant for men. Even after telephones spread to homes, it was still expected that one man would call another man for a brief and important exchange of information. It wasn't until the 1920s, 45 years after the phone was invented, that telephone companies started advertising telephones for personal communication. Picture the wife and homemaker of the 19th century, expected to have no interest or ambition outside of the domestic sphere, suddenly being given a way to talk to other women who are similarly cooped up in their gender roles. 
they soon realized that this newfangled telephone was a great way to stay in touch with their family and friends. The menfolk did not like this. What could a woman possibly have to say that was important enough to use the telephone? They'll only use it to gossip. And while she's gossiping, she's not doing housework or tending the children. The telephone would give wives a chance to complain to one another about their husbands, or, God forbid, talk to men who aren't their husbands. Obviously, it had to be stopped. When women began to use the instrument for sociability, wrote sociologist Michel Martin, men started to cry out at the futility, the frivolity of the use of the telephone in such a way, and then ridicule them in newspapers, in journals, and even in books. Men also decried social phone calls as dangerous because they would clog up the switchboards and prevent emergency calls from being connected. And women would have a hard time understanding how to use the telephone, as would blacks, immigrants, and rural farmers. Basically anyone who wasn't them. So just how much time exactly were women wasting on the telephone? The average phone call in 1909 was seven and a half minutes long. Maybe the menfolk would rather the women just wrote letters. Nope. While the Postal Service today is a mismanaged purveyor of unsolicited paper ads, there was a time when the whole idea of regularly delivered mail was considered revolutionary. Prior to the post office, a woman might write a letter and then give it to her parents or her husband to see it delivered. If your family had means, you'd send a servant to deliver it. Either way, it meant that someone else always knew who a woman was writing to. That all changed when author Anthony Trollope, working for the newly formed Postal Service in England, had red pillar mailboxes installed all over the country. Combined with the recently rolled out stamps, women could now correspond with whoever they wanted. In Britain, a woman could mail a letter in secret, but the reply would be delivered directly to the house and she could be found out, while her counterpart in New York could visit the post office to both send and receive mail entirely unmonitored by those who might want to regulate their lives. New York's original post office branch at the intersection of Nassau and Liberty Streets was quickly beset by women enjoying their newfound epistolatory freedom. In an 1855 gossip column, a stranger in Gotham tells the New York Times that a quick trip to the ladies' window at the post office left her enthralled. Before it came my turn to be served, that I drew into a corner, and for half an hour, eyes and ears did me as good a service as at any place of amusement that I have visited in the city. In other publications, however, the idea of unescorted ladies congregating equaled chaos and a threat to virtue. Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine told its British readers that their American cousin had the privilege, if she chooses to exercise it, of her own private box or pigeonhole at the post office of the town where she resides, where she can have her letters addressed, and whither by a lady's entrance, she can resort where she pleases and unlock her box from the outside, and take away her letters without observation. According to the people of the 1850s, women could not be trusted to contact only respectable people about important matters. If women were allowed to send letters unchecked, who knows what sorts of trouble they could bring on themselves. Even Trollope, inventor of the pillar box, regretted what he had inadvertently facilitated. According to one pseudonymous writer at the time, having clandestine correspondence with unprincipled men 
was already affecting a thousand schoolgirls a week and opening their minds to abnormal channels. He claimed madams had started hanging out at post offices specifically to lure young women into prostitution. Because we all know that's the logical consequence of letter writing. These foolish fears even reached the government, with Congress debating home delivery of mail, like they had over in England, to keep women out of the post offices and allow for more oversight into who they were getting their letters from. Okay, no phone calls, no mail. Maybe people will leave you alone if you just sit and read. Well, it better be the Bible or a nature book. Otherwise, nope. With industrialization in the 1700s came an increase in consumer goods as manufacturing increased, and that included books. More books meant cheaper books, which meant more people could afford them, so it was worthwhile for more people to learn to read. This both led to, and was fed by, the rising popularity of novels. If it's popular and new, people will freak out about it. Specifically, apparently, how it will lead women astray. For starters, if a woman's reading, that's time not spent learning to be a good wife, or learning the skills to work somewhere else as a servant. Popular novels were full of adventures, love stories, and heroines doing things that society frowned on. While men could be trusted to handle such stories, women were thought not to be able to tell fantasy from reality well enough. And of course, novels could make erotic suggestions which threaten chastity and good order. Privately owned books could also be read in private, as opposed to scarce singular books being read to a whole roomful of people. Anything done in private must inherently be dangerous, otherwise you would do it out in the open. The early feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, a novelist herself, wrote that novels, along with music, poetry, and gallantry, tend to make women the creatures of sensation, and their character is thus formed in the mold of folly. She might have been onto something, as Wollstonecraft's own daughter went on to conduct a teenage affair with a married philandering poet beside her own grave, then ran away with him to Switzerland, where she wrote Frankenstein. Even before affordable novels, some people thought that the printing of any book was problematic to public good. At the forefront of the anti-printing press campaign was a Benedictine monk named Johannes Trithemius, who wrote several books that criticized printing presses and, ironically printed, books that praised scribes who copied books by hand. He believed the art of printing would alienate people from religious contemplation. He thought the printing press and the books it produced were a passing fancy that should be ignored. Printed books were made with paper that wouldn't last nearly as long as the vellum used in manuscripts. Trithemius even encouraged monks to rewrite printed books by hand. This sort of stance predates Gutenberg and his movable type by a long, long time. We know the teachings of Socrates because they were written down by Plato, because Socrates was firmly against the written word. Socrates didn't believe a person could learn from reading, only from experience or first-hand observation. He believed that books were anathema to memory, that people wouldn't or couldn't retain information in their brains if it was written down in books. I'm not saying he was necessarily wrong there. I, for one, can't remember a poem that doesn't rhyme, 
let alone be able to recite the Iliad from memory. Maybe the men would be happy if we just sit quietly on the sofa. Nope again. In sharp contrast to the lazy boy couch with two built-in recliners, cup holders, heat, and massage. Moment of silence for the couch I lost in the fire. Furniture up until recently was anything but comfy. It kept you up off the ground, but that was about it. Your furniture could be limited to a table with benches on either side. The only thing that stood a chance of being remotely comfortable was your bed, the place where sex happened. Ergo, comfort equals sex. That was a lot of people's reactions when the modern sofa was introduced from the exotic East by Thomas Chippendale in 1748. After all, the ancient Greeks and Romans reclined on comfy sofas, and they were lousy with prostitutes and orgies. The culprit, the cause of such immorality, could only be the furniture. To drive the point home, a book was published in 1742 in both English and French called The Sofa, A Moral Tale. The plot revolved around a man from the Middle East who is turned into a sofa and seven couples have sex on him. Just as the convenience of telephones and the post office would eventually outweigh the fervor, the rich people who could afford upholstered sofas just liked not sitting on wooden benches, so sofas caught on. Can I at least eat a meal without it leading me to sin and depravity? Unless you're eating with your fingers, nope. You'll have to give up one-third of the modern cutlery triad. Forks as kitchen tools have been with us for ages, for spearing meat from a pot or holding it for carving. Forks to lift food to the mouth only gained widespread acceptance relatively recently. The fork was frequently compared with Satan's pitchfork, both of which stem from the same Latin word, furca, whether for serious reasons or just for satire. Though I have always wondered why this logic wasn't applied to pitchforks and hay forks that the farmers used. It was also argued that God had already created perfectly good fingers for the task, and using a fork was an affront to God's creation. Again, that logic was not applied to weapons or other tools. It's worth noting that table forks were common among many Muslim peoples, giving Christians a whole other angle to use to call forks evil. An 11th century illustrated manuscript from the Byzantine Empire showed two men using two-pronged fork-like instruments at the table, and St. Peter Damien criticized a Byzantine-born Venetian princess for her excessive delicacy. Such was the luxury of her habits that she deigned not to touch her food with her fingers, but would command her eunuchs to cut it up into small pieces, which she would impale on a certain golden instrument with two prongs and thus carry to her mouth. So offended was Damien by the woman's fork use at the table that when she died of plague, he declared it to be just punishment from God for her vanity. And that story was used by the church as evidence of the wickedness of forks for about 200 more years. The influential Medici family of Italy helped to spread fork use throughout Europe thanks to their love of pasta. Eating pasta with a spoon would be tricky at best and embarrassing at table at worst. But even with their highly fashionable influence, people still associated fork use with negatives. In the 16th century, forks became synonymous with aberrant sexuality. 
French satirist Thomas Artis published a strange book called The Island of Hermaphrodites to mock the court of the previous monarch Henry III. At the time, hermaphrodite was a pejorative term broadly applied to anyone you didn't like. In mocking Henry III's hanger-ons, one of the worst things artists could think of was that they never touch meat with their hands but with forks, whose prongs were so wide apart that they spilled more food than they picked up. The implications were clear. If you preferred a fork to fingers, you were just as bad as these sloppy, effeminate sycophants. A real man would use his fingers to eat. The same fingers he probably had cleaning his ears a moment earlier. Even into the 18th century, Louis XIV forbade his children from using forks. While fork acceptance did eventually take root on the continent, it was slower to catch on in England. Thomas Coriate is recorded as the first Englishman to use a fork regularly, and people began calling him Forcifer, an uninspiring combination of fork and Lucifer. Even up until 1897, men in the Royal Navy were still refusing to use forks because forks were too ladylike. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. So why were church officials so worked up over Ben Franklin's attempt to stop tall buildings from being struck by lightning? They thought of lightning as the artillery of heaven, God's wrath, which they would attempt to appease by having the church bells rung during storms. All that got them was electrocuted bell ringers. Franklin was blamed for a Boston-area earthquake because his lightning rods stopped God from punishing people from above, so he had to do it from below. Fortunately, Franklin had friends in all the right places who helped him with his efforts to stop people from being turned into a fine red mist. The lightning rod got a big boost for reports of a church in Italy that had refused to install a heretical rod and was then struck by lightning. The church was storing thousands of pounds of gunpowder at the time, for reasons, I assume, and the ensuing explosion leveled one-sixth of the city. Remember, you can always find the script for the episode as well as all of the sources used at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.